0: Welcome back to the one-to-one podcast. Uh, we're actually here with a, another special guest. Uh, she's an author. She's a speaker. She's a scholar, a professor. Um, more importantly, she's my friend. We have, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Janet Smith going to one-to-one podcast today. Janet, welcome.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Uh, so Janet is has agreed to meet with us because again, Father Dan is in the traveling season with COVID restrictions loosening. Uh, he's got Brazil, Honduras, Guatemala sort of stacking up on him. He um he's really going at it even harder right now. So for the next several weeks, we're gonna have uh esteemed guests like Dr. Smith and Janet. I'm gonna call you Janet. Is that okay? Yes, very good. I figured you wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, so Janet and I are going to get into a theme on Father Al. So if you've been watching the One to One podcast for the last several months, um, you'll know, hopefully you know, that last, actually yesterday, Ignatius Press released my my biography on Father Al's life called Priest and Beggar, The Heroic Life of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. And Janet was charitable enough to say, Kevin, you know what? I don't I don't mind reading a pre-release and uh, maybe trying to put a stamp of approval on it, which once again, Janet was kind enough to do for us. So Janet, I'm just going to open it up here, not on Father Al, but last week, actually, we brought into the show Bishop Strickland. When I say the name to you, Bishop Joseph Strickland,
1: what, what comes to mind? Uh, gratitude and admiration. Uh, we, we so much need bishops who... Uh, are independent of the whole NCCB structure and who act as bishops, not as cogs in a machine, um, but speaks from his heart, speaks from his faith, um, doesn't have to have every word verified by some higher up. He's clearly not ambitious. If he were ambitious, he wouldn't say 99% of what he says. Um, He's serving his flock, uh, and he knows his most immediate flock are the people of Tyler, but he also knows it extends beyond that. And I think he's an enormous consolation uh, to people across the United States and likely across the world that we have at least one man who's uncontroversially um, a dedicated bishop. I'm not saying there aren't others, but this man is manifestly so.
0: Amen, hallelujah, Janet. I I was reading, the reason we brought Bishop Strickland in is because the theme was boldness. Father Al was... um, was a very bold priest, uh, as, as we know, Janet, you and I know that that um, Bishop Strickland is has been bold and prophetic. But really, all he's doing is preaching the catechism. So when he when he preaches on maybe, or when he speaks out on Father James Martin's blasphemies, or he brings up, you know, how can you be a Democrat and be Catholic? You know, it's really not so much bold, but it's just kind of catechism. But but it's it's seen as bold nowadays. And I I, I was thinking. Father Al had once written, I think he he gave a homily in in 87 or 88, right before he got his Lou Gehrig's Diagnosis, he said that holiness is not only boldness, but holiness is suffering. So Bishop Strickland, in in making these proclamations and being prophetic, he suffers because he knows he's he's in the minority. There's not a lot of bishops out there, Janet, as you just said, that that are joining him on this train of courage. So, so what speaks to me, Jane, i want to see if it speaks to you, in a certain sense, he's all out there on the plains, all alone, like a gazelle, with this pride of lions just crouched, ready to pounce.
1: That's a pretty good image. Um, you know, he's, he'll be the first to tell you that uh, before he became a bishop, no one would have said he was a man of courage. He said it, it, it was, it, I had the privilege of meeting him maybe two years ago, maybe not that long, but. Um, he said this just straightforwardly, and it was very clear that the um, the graces of the office just walloped him. Um, and that he responded to those. It's just like in, in, he actually read to me the um, oath that he took as a bishop and, and teared up, like, this is what I mm. have pledged to do. Uh, and you know to guard the deposit of faith among other things. And he said, that's that's what I have to do, and I have to do it whether or not it pleases the others in the hierarchy. Uh, or not. And just so seeing someone just, uh, I mean, he's obviously not, as I said, he's not a climber. He's not ambitious. He just wants to do the job that God has given I mean, him. He'll, he'll be the first to tell you again that he has, you know, doubled and redoubled and quadrupled his 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 prayer life um, since he's become a, a bishop. Years ago, I thought of that. I said, if I were, you know, male and I was asked to be a bishop, I mean, the first thing I would do is pray more. And then I said, well, why would I pray more then? <laughs> Why wouldn't I pray more now? Um, but it, it it happened to him invisibly. Happened to him, and I, I wish we could see that more often uh, in our in our bishops. Someone who just clearly is is trying to live out his vocation. And yeah, I love it. Go yeah, ahead, Janet. Yeah, that it, we call him bold and courageous, and it's only bold and courageous because it's such a hostile church. Uh, if the church were what it should be he should be an ordinary ordinary (laughs) he should be a guy the kind of bishop that you would absolutely expect to have but when now when we find that bishops speak out against abortion and concern about the cells from abortion the the use of um, tissue from aborted babies used in vaccines we're stunned by this you know it's like is he allowed to say that is he allowed to do that uh, other bishops criticizing him for this, and you're saying, this, it, it, "What kind of church do we have?"
0: Yeah, th- well, that's it. That's it, Janet. You know, he knows. He knows what what you know is that there's a battle for goodness now uh, being waged in a very dark place in this world that's deeply confused. So, because he takes things these things on, he's being besieged by the world. He does get slaughtered by uh, if you if you. If you pay attention to when he comes out with one of his rather unquote unquote bold pronouncements, he gets slaughtered. You're going to go to hell. You're, you're a false bishop. You're you're angry. You're judgmental, et cetera. But he simply doesn't care. So, Janet, you said he's not a climber. And of course he's not. I kind of see him, though, as a rock climber, like he's always <laughs> climbing rocks like this, the greatest saints. I always see saints as rock climbers trying to get to the mountain of heaven. That's kind of who Bishop Strickland is. He's not trying to be a hotshot, as you said, Janet. He was sanctified by the office. The most beautiful things always happen that are invisible, that you can't see, and and that's why it's great. So, so he he, he we have a lack of transcendence. Well, he certainly is is not part of that. He's part of the transcendent. So so, Jana, what I want to kind of wrap today around, uh, if you don't mind, you've always been, uh, for as long as I've been following you, as long as my mom Judy Wells fell in love with you way back when, um, mm-hmm. not ago. Um, but when she read contraception, why not? When these hundreds of thousands, if not millions of folks listen to the audio tape or CD, you have been concerned with life. So I'd like to sort of flip it on life. Um, as you know, now, Father Al took life seriously. Mm-hmm. and He lived a very severe, stark priesthood. He chose it. He made a choice. I will live a priesthood in servitude to Mary, and I will not take a day off. I will work hard. Um, he just made that decision and and he did it. So I'm wondering, Janet, as far as it, it it's life, this relentlessness that Father Al had to live out life the way that God had sort of stuck into him, mm-hmm. kind of like an icon. I'm wondering, just life, how do you see Father Al or others that live this,
1: Bishop Strickland, live this life that is outside the norm? Well, it really shouldn't be for a, a, a Christian. It really shouldn't be. Uh, there's always going to be Christians that uh, stand above the rest of us. Um, God has asked them. He's put them there. I mean, it's like a bishop. A bishop is higher up on a hierarchy. It doesn't mean he's more holy, but it means what he's asked to do is very defined and it's very different from what the rest of us are asked to do. Um, And so we're all asked to do something radical, honestly, for the Lord. And the the radicalness that all of us are asked to do is to dedicate our whole lives to the Lord, to whatever it is that he wants us to do. For some people, that might be a very hidden life, as Mary's was. You don't know what Mary did day by day, but she didn't um, she didn't found organizations. She didn't found institutes. She didn't do any of that. Um, She was simply dedicated to her son. Um, And given who her son was, you say that was really sufficient and how much she must have been a mentor to the other apostles and the disciples and those that were attracted to Christ, how much she must have helped them understand who he was, how much um, just support she gave to uh, Jesus himself. I mean, she she's the only one who, who uh, she understood better than anybody who he was and what he was doing and what he was going to suffer. So you can imagine the consolation that he had merely being in her presence. So you get these people who have led, and some people are confined to their bed their whole life uh, from some sort of terrible disease. And those lives we believe in the church are incredibly valuable if they are turned over to the Lord, that the suffering is there uh, for the Lord. And so you don't have to be um, a Father Al, but Father Al has to be a Father Al. Um, you know, he, he was responding to a call, you know, and he could have responded less generously, but he responded to the absolute max, it seems to me, uh, to that call. And uh, that's his example. It's not so much that all of us should go out and live in a little hut like the poor live. He was called to do that. And um, he did it. Uh, there are some who, who call to do it. I'm so impressed now with your interviews with Father Dan, um, and just thinking how he must have, <laughs> he must be dizzy uh, to sort of have this as Mother Teresa called it a call within a call. You your first call to something, and then you seem to be called to something more. And uh, so you see, this Father Dan, who is, you know, he could have gone along with just his his. Not a, a good priestly life is ever comfortable, but comparatively speaking, to what he's doing now, I mean, I've been watching them. You know, he says he says five masses a day. He spends hours counseling these uh, young people and um, helping the nuns and giving retreats. And I just sit there and think, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And one thing I hope is the product of your uh, your bringing this good news uh, to the world about this order and the work that they do is that more young men and women will want to be a part of it. And they'll say, that's the radical thing. I was, one of the things that touched me the most in the book was that father Al wanted to find an order um, that called their priest to the kind of heroic witness that he wanted to give. And he couldn't find one. He finally found one in France. He had his tensions with them, but, um, I think there's many young people out there who want to make a very radical commitment to the Lord, but they can't find the order that calls them uh, to that. I mean, I think in the United States, there's an incredible call for something similar. I don't know exactly what that the, the women say in Mexico, the nuns in Mexico are doing, but um, there are so many kids in the United States that are in in foster care, and sometimes foster care can be just magnificent, and other times it's horrible. And to have a place, even if even if they live at home with their their mother, or and usually these are kids with just a, a mother. The father they have a father, of course, but it's an absentee father. But a you know a someone who would take care of their kids really beautifully during the day and say in the evening and the mothers can work and can advance their education and, and see their, their children certainly on the weekends and maybe a couple hours every night, but that they have some place where the kids can be, where they're perfectly safe, they're getting loved, they're getting a good education. Um, I can see it in Detroit, uh, the the need for something like that. I, I try to help a, um, a woman who at the age of 24 had or 25 had five kids um, under under seven uh, on her own. Didn't graduate uh, high school. Never worked a day in her life, and was trying to negotiate life. <laughs> I thought I couldn't live her life for one day, not for one day to try to get five kids in the morning fed and dressed, and some of them off to school. And even though she's totally living on welfare, to, working with that system is a nightmare. And the anxiety that she must have every day is, when is it all going to collapse around me? So, I mean, I see that. And I think we need some people who are going to, and I think young women would, young women love children, of course, and to, to be there with children would be magnificent. So I, I hope some people take some inspiration from this and say, what is God calling them to do in, in, in parallel to what Father Al did?
0: Thank you, Janet. And you identified with the 24 year old. She's a hero. I mean, what the way she acts is heroic. You know, it's almost like a, you know, a flower growing up in a junkyard. She, she's heroic and she gets it done as a sacrifice for her kids. And you identified, I think what discussions are taking place now is the Sisters of Mary may be taking up shop in America in a Detroit, or maybe even a holler in West Virginia where there's great poverty, but really the, the maybe even the bigger problem then, material poverty is the poverty of the soul. so many have just lost sight of God so that, that's that it's actually you identified something Janet that is just now being discussed. Why not come to North America um, And kind of flipping back to one of the things you touched on is model an example of Father Allen and Janet, one of the reasons I'll be candid that I'm that I'm drawn to your work is it, it's, it seems to me that there's something that lives in you that mm. you can't shut down and what that is, you have kind of this radicality to take things on that just aren't right. And it all seems to center around truth or life or how life should be lived out according to God's natural law. So where I see it most is you take things on, whether it's the vaccine or whether it's the behavior of bishops or whether it's supporting somebody that came out against someone in a tough way, you come out and say, yeah, you know what? This guy's right. And, and, Is there something in you that just wants to stick your nose into the mix and say, no, I'm going to,
1: I want a part of this. Well, I, you know, it's an odd thing. You try to figure it. I mean, I'm just, you know, an odd person and you have some you figure, Yeah, I'm just odd. I mean, you think, how did you get to be so odd? And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's true. And so uh, the best thing I can find was my mother was uh, the oldest child of an immigrant family. Her parents didn't speak English. And so she, she, you know, she learned English in, in kindergarten. Then her parents started learning it. And uh, there was some story where some kid in the neighborhood hit her younger brother. And my mother heard of it at the dinner table. She was about nine at the time, and she got up and she walked a couple blocks and walked into this, the bully's house, and and hit him. Um, and we, we were told of this story when I was a child as as something that was remarkably wonderful about my mother. And I don't know if, if it's that point where I just decided, I just can't stand bullies. I can't stand people who, um, you know, pick on people. And there is a way in which, you know, dissenters, et cetera, they're kind of bullies. They aren't, they, they don't respect, they don't respect others in a sense. They put themselves forward as those that we have to bow to, or they will deny us jobs, positions, all sorts of things. When I first went to teach at Notre Dame, I was very clear. I was being told not to teach on the churches, not to teach the church's teaching on contraception, that that was, that was, was going to be a killer uh, to my career. And, you know, I'm, I was a single woman, and I'm a single woman now. And I thought, if anybody can do it, I can do it. I'm not risking a family if I do this. Uh, so um, I really discerned that God was asking me to do this, whether or not I, I got tenure. And I didn't. And that wasn't the end of the world. And so you say, Wow, <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Uh, and so and it's satisfying. It's it's just really satisfying if you if you can do it. Um, I, I was recently talking to a, a friend here who had a very hard moral decision to make, he has a family, six, seven kids, and, and it was um, he thought he would might lose his job, but he decided to go forward and and do what he thought was right. Now, God God worked everything out. Everything out the next morning, you wake up and say, I don't have to do any of it because this it all got worked out. And I think, but what has happened to him and his soul? Um, that he knew that he was ready to make that sacrifice and just radically trust in the Lord. So I, I think God asks every one of us, and you know, as you say, truth seems to be the thing that really vibrates with me. And my, my protection of the unborn is the truth that this is a human being, this is a human life, it's a truth, it's not just. A, a sentimental Catholic preference. It's a scientific truth. And so I, I think that we all have things that resonate. God has put something in our system that he really wants to activate through our faith. And um, some of it will be the radical commitment that father Al um, has made and all of those beautiful nuns um, have made. And I think, you know, you touched on it is a just profound joy um, that they have and how, life-sustaining that is and I also love the fact that he made in Korea and he's made it seems in all of his places one of the things they teach these uh, young people who've been brutalized by the by the world in so many ways but through their love of them and and it comes from the healing comes from God and that they're meant to be evangelists that go out to their families and to the world uh, and they the effect that those children have had on Korea, as your book tells us, is just incredible. They learn a marketable skill and they learn how to evangelize. And what 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 should education do? <laughs> Except heal the wounds, which it's doing. It's it's helping them attain virtue. It's deepening their faith. It's giving them a skill and it's making them go out into the world. Again, you don't have to go out into the world to set up a new project, a new institution. I mean, I, I actually spoke to a group of young, men in um, inner city Detroit once, and I'm, very few of these guys had a father at home and very few of them had a father in their lives. And I just said to him, I said, Mike, it's, I said, it's, it's, it's uh, of the male nature actually to want to do something great. He doesn't have to do something great as a singleton, but he wants to be a part of a team that does something great. They wanna win, they wanna win. win and do something great. And I said, one thing you guys can do is wait to marry, to have sex, Marry a woman you can live with for the rest of your life that you're going to love for the rest of your life and be there for your kids. I said, that's a great thing. That's not a small thing. The amount of good that can be done in the world by people simply being faithful to their vows um, and living in accord with God's truth. Again, they might not ever get their picture in the paper or some sort of trophy, but they will have done something great. So what they're doing with these thousands of girls and thousands of boys, they're all going to do something great. It's just, uh, I'm just so moved by that when I see those pictures of of 3,000 girls in in one room and they're all joyful. (laughs) It's just staggering, staggering. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's not a painted on fallow joy. It's it's a joy that they came in as Lazaruses that have been deeply wounded, sort of deadened souls that are being resurrected by the sisters of Mary that say, give me your cross. I know you're wounded, but I'm going to work every day to, to get into that wound, bring Christ into it so you can leave this place five years later as shafts of light into the world. And Janet, I'll tell you this because I've, I've been there, spent a lot of time down there, is <laughs> Father Dan and the sisters are truly, in a very practical way, they're saving the Catholic Church. Mm. Because they, there's over 20,000 today in these 18 no 14 boys' towns and girls' towns in 18 different places around six countries that that are leaving as shafts of catechized Catholic joy into workplaces into their families into universities they they don't because father out their spiritual father was bold and strong and they saw the sacrificial love of the mm-hmm. all these sisters and also how father Dan laid down his life to lead them out of these wounds they know joy and they know catholicity so anyway you're right so i do want to circle back to something janet i'm an old journalist so i gotta i gotta try and break some janet smith news <laughs> i i so so you i've identified you and we have a friend in common in old uh, an old exorcist uh from mm-hmm. an unnamed location who who said janet's really good with those bishops so you brought up bullies earlier and, and you know just the other day i i read that uh, in the National Catholic Register that Cardinal Tobin and Cardinal Supich mm-hmm. met with the CDF to kind of streamline and, and suffocate the President Biden. I, you know what? It's too political with communion. We, need, we just need to get let this go away and we'll, we'll sort of kneecap the whole argument and we'll just say, well, everyone's got to be aligned. so in, until we're aligned, we can't make a, an announcement. So, so yeah, Pre- President Biden can, can continue to receive communion. I could draw you in there, but where I'm more interested is, do you see men like Cardinal Supich and Cardinal Tobin as the bullies that your mom introduced you to yeah.
1: 40, 50, 60 years ago? Oh, very much so. I mean, very much so. And um, uh, bullies, <laughs> it, it's, I did not necessarily seen that exact word to it, but especially you can see it in their treatment of priests um, who rock the boat in any way. Um, they just take these men and sideline it, And some of them are in fact everyone I've known are just golden they're golden they're the kinds of priests you want and I mean I don't know why I had caught it on about 40 30 years ago I would say to people if you want to find a really good priest in a diocese just go to the boondocks and um that's where you'll find them in some out-of-the-way church that is an assignment that virtually no one wants um and it, and I said, "That's where we'll find the best priests." You say, "Why is that? Why aren't the?" It's it's the lavender mafia that um, populates the chancery office, uh, and why is it the the boldest, the most devout, the most obedient priests are those who are on the periphery? So yes, I think they're bullies, literally bullies uh, to those, and they use their fidelity against them. You know, they and I'm I'm doing some work now on on what the obedience, um, what kind of obedience a priest owes his bishop. Um, and I think that's been tremendously, um, distorted over, over the, the, the centuries, um, what, what is owed to, uh, a bishop. And so, um, I, am all for respect, obviously, to bishops. They are, they are part of the whole apostolic succession. Um, and I can only have respect for their office. The question is the respect for how they execute their office. And I, it, it's, uh, it's been a big thing for me to become critical. I remember many, many years ago, one of my friends who was a journalist who was very critical of a bishop. And I said, don't do that. Just don't do that. Just um, be critical of the kinds of position he holds. But now it's, it's gotten, it's so pervasive. Uh, and so many people are still in the kind of knee-jerk, uh, which is a good thing. I don't want to mock it in any way. It's a good thing to have your default position, one of respect for a bishop and belief that he's a good man. But but those default positions have caused us to be blind. Um, and, I, I mean, I'm more and, more, and I'm hearing from priests. I just heard one, from, one right before this a phone call from a man I had, and he, he listened to something I'd said about good priests being squashed by their bishops. And he said, I, you know, it just felt so good to hear someone acknowledge that. He said, to have someone recognize what we live under, he said, was so uh, consoling. And you know, and he says, I have to be very careful what I say and what I do. I just have to pick what battles I'm going to fight. And I said, well, just let God f- pick those battles for you. But right, you can't just go off fighting from battle and you have to discern. But I don't think we, again, we've known how hard it is um, for good priests under bad bishops.
0: Certainly. Uh, you know, so these these good priests, will get, so I, I wrote the book two years ago, The Priests We Need to Save the Church, and many priests from throughout the country um, got in touch with me in various ways. And what I kept hearing is what you just said. Some have been sidelined to the boonies with 75 families in the whole parish, and they should be in front of 7,500 families because of their their joy and their Catholicity. They're just joyful priests. Matter of fact, one of my very close friends right now is undergoing this. Um, It seems to me the Lavender Mafia, what they do now, if if a priest is too orthodox or too prophetic or preaches on the Marxism of Black Lives Matter or preaches on that Joe Biden should in fact not receive communion, that what happens is, is the Lavender Mafia will say, well, doctrine in a certain way doctrine is bullying to the to the folks that are hurt in the parishes so you need to be banished to the country because you're preaching from the catechism prophetically the way john vianney did that doctrine from you father that's bullying so you're done so they it's so twisted they almost it it around all right yeah so i don't know if you're if you can draw that sort of analogy and
1: see how it's all flipped yeah, it, and also it's not only the bullying, but they always they always claim it's divisive. It's divisive. And you wanna say, no, what, what unifies us is doctrine. What unifies us, the Catholics, is, is we believe the same things. That's what it is. And those who are dissenters, which a lot of the mafia generally are, um, or maybe always are, you wanna say, I'm sorry, you're the one in division, not me. Uh, that priest that's preaching what he should preach, he's not causing the division. And I've, I have mean, I've heard priests told they shouldn't do it because other priests in the diocese don't, don't accept the church's teaching. So you shouldn't do it because you're being divisive. I said, Bishop, you're looking, the problem's not there, the problem's somewhere else. But that's, it, it, it's an indication of what the bishop believes. And uh, he believes with the lavender mafia may in fact be part of it. And so the the poor priest who who joined the priesthood because he wanted to make a radical commitment to the Lord and to the uh, he was going to sacrifice marriage and prestige and money and luxury and all of these things um, to to preach the gospel. Uh, now that he's being told that's what he can't do, you know, just be a dispenser of the, of the sacraments in a very bland kind of way. Don't even make the sacraments. Don't let people know what these really are, because then they might become radicalized uh, in their faith if they knew, it, knew what this really is. Um, I mean, I, every church I've gone to where there's a priest who starts to preach the fullness of the faith, you, you, you very quickly see the, the congregation growing and growing and growing. Not, not diminishing. I mean, the priests, seem, the bishops, seem to think that if we teach the the, te- the church's teaching, people will be chased away. Well, <laughs> we haven't been teaching it for 50 years, and we have almost empty churches, except for places where priests are bold in teaching the the, the the church's teaching on matters.
0: That's it, Janet. Yeah, let's dam up the transcendence. Let's dam up the supernatural dimension. Let's just keep everything sort of tamped down. Um, It seems to be the way. And you said it. The bold priests are the ones that lead souls to conversion, to sanctity. Like I am going to treat my spouse better. I'm going to parent better. But for some reason, let's just tamp all that down. Um, So, yeah, it's 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 insidious. And, you know, and and Janet, last thing, we don't want to go on and on and belabor this. But where where my eyes became opened and, and as yours were whenever was when after the scandal of McCarrick, there wasn't this sackcloth and ashes penitential movement towards we beg for your forgiveness. You know the jig is up. You knew that we knew. Even the Pope knew, according to Archbishop Egino. Please, we're gonna we're gonna spend a year in, in front of adoration begging for you to forgive us um, because we've made a mockery of the Catholic faith. Not only did that not happen, not only were they silent on that, but when COVID hit last March, two marches ago. There wasn't this active understanding of the burden of the bishop to say we need to be creative, we need to be active, energetic, to find the ways to get the laity Eucharist during these strange times when this virus is floating around. When that wasn't done, the eyes became open and I said they are checked out. Now that's just me.
1: I don't I don't know. Did this happen well before for you? Oh, I think, uh, no, right about the same time, and um, very much at the same time. But I'm watching all my my friends. I mean, there the were priests, we know that. I mean, and, and a lot of them were pretty much newly ordained in the last five or six years who did say the prayer. Did You know, in the snow, they heard confessions outside, and they... They had you know, parking lot masses, which their bishops were forbidding parking lot masses. Where, you know, Now they're, you know, they said, well, you're going to spread it. You say, everybody's going to be sitting in their car. How can it be spread? You know, and they just would shut down everything. And everybody's saying, why do we have the hunger for it? And the bishops don't. They don't seem to have it themselves. A lot of them, it just seemed a lot of people took took a vacation. Then you know, I hate to say it. I mean, I, I was a part of that group that... Um, we are an Easter people that were just begging to have um, Easter mass and it wasn't allowed last year and you just had a feeling and again I'm not a cynical person by nature I truly am not but I just thought you know for a lot of these priests and bishops this is just a lovely vocation because Easter weekend is exhausting not only I mean i as a lay person I get exhausted over um the Easter weekend, and think how tired priests must be. I just can't even imagine, because I'm, I might be finding time to go to confession during that week, but they're finding time to hear hundreds of confessions, and they're preparing for the liturgies, and all these other things, and think, wow, this is just a great vacation. You know, just put a few people on, and have it on on um, the internet, and you just go, and I hate to say it, sit in your hot uh, tub. And so it's, it's really... Um, it's been extremely discouraging how little, when, when they say the people don't believe, I say, do the bishops, do the bishops believe? If they believed, could they, you, we saw what the priests who believed did. We saw what they did. And of course, they were mocked as being grandstanders or showmen or something better than everybody else. You know, they, and they were, they were working so hard to somehow get the Eucharist um, to people. Even just, to, you know, carrying a, a monstrance on the back of a truck through a neighborhood. I, I saw one in, I think it was Africa. They had some little su little, little RV, and, and well, not an RV, whatever it is that you have like a little three-wheel thing with, and had some sort of um, trailer behind it. Then the priest sitting in some rickety something, taking the monstrance from hut to hut, and I thought there is a beauty in this. I mean, God showed us that he wants to be present to everyone and that even people who don't get much beyond the door of their hut in Africa, Jesus comes to them. Um, that was beautiful. It was unbelievable because the priest believed and because the people wanted it. But what do our bishops, what did they do? They And they still do. They still are buckling to the state in respect to uh, to how many, I mean, most of our, our, the lay people just bullied our way through, if you will, in a good way of bullying. We're still going to mass, you know, and, and we're going to get in there somehow. Uh, and they say maybe you only have 25 percent. Who's counting? You know, we're all here now. And um, so there we are.
0: Yeah. You know, and we know, Janet, obviously, there's no rash judgment here because, you know, we love priests. You know, we love the office of the bishop and we both know holy bishops and we both know many holy priests. I'm from a family of priests. My brother is a priest. So there's there's many out there, but it just seems that there's too many priests that simply are not holy bishops that are holy, or at least they are not making the choice. And I think it all comes down to a choice to step into it, as Bishop Strickland does, and just take things on. Damn the torpedoes. I must proclaim the gospel and just step into this world. So with that said, Janet, Father, I would have loved you. So you're on the Father yeah. Al team now, because, because yeah. Father, Al, Father yeah. Al, he also did not have a verbal straitjacket. He came at it uh, and, and was always battling his own bishop in Korea, the American bishops in in, uh, in America that wanted to take, you know, the donations were coming into to uh, Korea. So he just took things on, and he always won. Every time he won, even the kingpins that wanted to murder him because of his money that he was bringing in for donations. Come, come on, try. And he just won. No one could beat him because he was Marian. He gave his priesthood to Mary, And because he was unafraid, bold, and he loved being a priest. So that said, Janet, thank you very much. Um, I, I, was gonna, I was just going to ask you, I just asked Bishop Strickland last week, and I, every week I ask Father Dan for a blessing. I'm not going to ask you for a blessing, but, but, I, will, but I will say uh, before we cut out here, I want to say thank you so much for reading Priest and Beggar, Heroic Life of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. It's now out, one-to-one viewers, um, Ignatius.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local Catholic bookstore. Please, I encourage you to read the life of this American superhero. Uh, I think you'll be staggered by what what he actually accomplished. A priest is ordained to save souls. Father Al saved generations of souls. He just did. Uh, I've seen it live in concert. Uh um, that said, Janet, anything else before we cut out?
1: Well, just thanks to you for, for bringing this to everybody, him, to everybody's attention. I suspect there's more than one book it, it, of materials that you've got on, on Father Al. And so I hope there's a, another one of his letters and, uh, uh, and interviews with, uh, children have gone through the whole process and what, it, what it meant to them and interviews with the, the nuns, uh. It, it is so incredible. You said they are the church today. They are the hope of the church. And for those of us who are just hanging on uh, to, I mean, I, I can't imagine my ever getting so disillusioned with the corruption of the church that I would leave the church. But believe me, those stories give me a lot of fuel uh, to go on and, and, and fight the fight. And so just to see how God is, I mean, we did disciples. Who knew that those 12 disciples were going to do anything? Uh, and they changed the world. And those thousands that Father Al and the nuns are, and Father Dan and now you are sending out, oh, what an impact they're going to have on the world. So many people are going to say, well, I thought Catholicism died. And I go say, no, it's a, look at it. <laughs> it's flourishing. It's not extinct. And it's not extinct because it's reproducing in these most um, out-of-the-way, unknown places, which is just how God works.
0: That, that, that's yeah. it. As long as we got a pinhole of light, a pinhole of hope, then There's we it. have joy. And we have that right now. We still got a heartbeat. Uh, it, it's just a beautiful thing because it goes on and good sisters, a good priest, and the heirlooms that Father Al has brought forth, they're going into the world. And this you're being viewers, so much hope. They're going into the world as shafts of light. They want to bring the fullness of the faith to folks that just don't understand it or maybe have abandoned it. Or maybe poverty has knocked them flat. They say, "Get up, listen to what the sisters taught me." Father Dan told me this. Let me tell you about Father Out. It's true. This is a good story. So uh, think about reading all about the story in the biography, Priest and Beggar. Janet, thank you very much. We'll uh, hopefully you. see each other soon. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Bye bye.